the process has always been more important than the product. I didn't know that I would be sitting here doing this. I had no fucking idea. I just wanted to see how far I could go. I just wanted to see how far I could go. Like, I didn't know. This is for the others out there. The other ambitious people who want to play at a higher level in their life. It's time to get curious and get real. Join me, and together, let's find the others. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Find the Others podcast. I am your host, Joshua Church. Grateful to have you with us. New episodes are dropping every Wednesday and Sunday, so be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can get the notification when a new episode comes out. And give me a follow on Instagram at Joshua Dean Church to catch different clips and highlights that I post. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, you find something that might be valuable, please be sure to share it with a friend who also might be into it so that together we can continue to grow our tribe of others. Today, I'm excited to bring you a conversation I had with Mike Sager. Mike is a best-selling author and award-winning reporter. He's been called the beat poet of American journalism. For more than 40 years, he's worked as a writer for the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, GQ, and Esquire. In 2010, he won the American Society of Magazine Editors National Magazine Award for Profile Writing. More than 10 of his articles have been optioned for or have inspired television, movies, and series and feature films, including Boogie Nights starring Mark Wahlberg. The author of a dozen books and ebooks, Sager is also the editor and publisher of the Sager Group LLC, a consortium of multimedia artists and writers. We talked all about his story of dropping out of law school to pursue a career in writing and the effects of that. He shared some incredible stories of some of the pieces he worked on, ranging from a profile on Kobe Bryant to investigative pieces with pimps and prostitutes and pretty much everything in between. Check out the Sager Group online at mikesager.com, and I hope you enjoy this story time with Mike Sager. Always, always like to start with some breathing just to, just to get on the same page, you know, get on that same wavelength. What'd you say? So I think I'm high. Yeah, man, breathing will get you high as, uh, as as Wim Hof always says, the breathwork guy always says, getting high on your own supply. I mean, you flood you know, your system with endorphins, you flood your system with norepinephrine and and some of these amazing feel good chemicals. So yeah, when you do that breathwork, have you done breathwork? Have you done like breathwork practice? You know, um, I have because I am uh, afflicted, as many Jews are, with uh, anxiety, which I didn't even <laughs> recognize till I was older. Um, I have a complication with breath work and anxiety, which is I also have asthma, mm. which is well under control at my age, but was kind of a thing. So concentrating on my breathing, not comforting, mm. you know, so it hasn't been the best thing for me. So I just have my other, I have my other roots, what peacefulness. Yeah, what are some of those? What are some of those things? Just out of curiosity, um, I try not to tell people this too much. But since you know, you always need exclusive shit for your podcast. I um, I do have a jacuzzi, a hot tub, whatever they call it now, a spa, a spa and yep. um, it's on a little, it's on a little uh, these stilts that was very interesting, built by this family of six a father and five sons from Alpine who are like, like some band of hillbillies that came down who dig holes in the ground, which is if you've ever dug holes in this rocky soil around here. Um, so that was a trip. But anyway, so they built me a spa platform and I just, I like, I like to go like around 1230. I put a, I put an umbrella up there. Mm-hmm. So I create my own shade, I get out of the shade, and then I just like chill mm. and kind of like, you know, 102 in the summer and more like 103, 104 in the winter. But um, it's like being under a warm blanket in a cold climate. Yep. And uh, I'm 
fortunate that I can see the ocean. So it's just like, oh yeah, what else is there? I love it. I love it. It's a good, uh, yeah, it's a good grounding reminder for sure. Especially I'm sure with, and I with think your... like 1230 is a good time. 1230. That's the time. Go ahead. Yeah. I was gonna say, so 1230 yeah, is the time. And then you do your workout after, uh, after school hours, right? Yeah. Then I like go eat some lunch. Then I'm back at, at work. I mean, um, when I wrote about Kobe Bryant, uh, I spent seven days with him and Vanessa Got to hang out with her too. Wow. Um, and this was at a time, I'm horrible with years, but it was when Kobe, it was like after Colorado and Kobe was injured and he was kind of talking about leaving um, the Lakers maybe. He was just really kind of unhappy. But at the same time, he was at home and he was building this workout and Nike was sort of building a commercial around Kobe's work ethic. Hmm. And so like I like I was a five foot three division three varsity soccer player. Okay. Yep. So I have always had to like try really hard. And then I went to a, a, a good college. It wasn't as good as it is now. Emory University mm -hmm. it was okay back then. But I, did, I just went straight to the Washington Post um, just by accident. I'd gone to law school in Georgetown. I spent three weeks there and I decided I really wanted, well, I knew I really wanted to be a writer. I don't know what I was doing there. I was listening to my parents and being a good Jewish boy and mm -hmm. having something to fall back on. And then I could become a writer. Did you, um, and you always, you always knew you wanted to be a writer professionally. Well, it, or, it's odd. It, the, that, that lightning moment oddly came to me at like eight in the morning. I was leaving my fraternity house to walk across campus to go take my law boards for the first time, the LSATs. And um, I was walking out of the house, out of the steps, and it came to me that I just want to see how far I can go as a writer. Mm. and um that you know i don't i've done an internship with lawyers i'm like eh, you know and i'm still going anyway because i got into a good school and because i was like a shit student in high school 2.6 yeah. <laughs> barely got into school i was very very fast um so uh that, and i could score i was really good at scoring up front in soccer so that got me into a college, mm -hmm. but, um, but so then I had to become like a, a, you know, I got into the writing program there. I, it all started out a fraternity again, a fraternity brother came to me one day says, uh, I'm leaving I'm the editor of the literary magazine and the literary magazine has always been edited by someone from our fraternity. It's yours. And I'm like, huh? And I hadn't done anything since high school journalism. And I, I kind of like flirted with trying to do the newspaper at Emory, but um, um, that I, I had a hometown honey and, and I was leaving town and coming some and then work playing on the team. And the editor was kind of like, you know, F you, you're not, you're not dedicated, you know, you're so I'm mm. like, okay. So, but anyway, so all of a sudden I was dropped into this like thing where we had to bring out a magazine or we would lose the funds. And I just brought all my friends together. It was like that old movie, Mickey and Judy, like make a show yeah. uh, in their barn or whatever, like Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. It's like a really, it's even too old for me to reference, but it is the internet so we can know everything. Um, but, and I just had my friends there and I was going, they were asking me questions and I kind of like didn't know shit, but I was just going like, yes, no, do this, do that. Like pointing and, you know, quarterbacking it, you know, and I, I was a creative writing major minor. So it was no problem getting, you know, the people to give you their shit to be published. But mm -hmm. um, so that then led me to meeting the editor of the magazine of the newspaper and he is now my lifelong friend. He's a producer at 60 Minutes, uh, Henry Schuster. Um, 
So we both ended up going into this business and he's like my oldest friend in the business. And, uh, but then it was kind of like, weirdly, I did well in school. The only bad grade I got was when I quit the soccer team. The coach gave me a C and it, it, <laughs> I had a 4-0 before that. And so <laughs> he fucked up my, and he knew he was doing it too. That's he fucking funny. knew it. But he could only, they only picked four freshmen every year out of 50 because there was no JV. So he was planning for you to stay. Right. Even though like one of the first things he said to me was, Sega, are you a Jew? He went, he was, he's from Davidson. Yeah. And in the beginning, I couldn't even like Stephen Curry for that reason. Cause, yeah. Because <laughs> he was from Davidson. But anyway, so making the team was like, getting a kind of a chip off my shoulder because I want, I just, as you know, as a, as a high school kid who only cares about sports and if that's what you want to do, you kind of have to do it. But then I kind of got over it and then I got into this whole writing thing, but then it was like, my parents thought it was a good idea for me to be a lawyer. Right. So, and that kind of made sense. And like, I was kind of into my parents, like, you know, as I got older, I realized how much they fucked me up. But when I was younger, I kind of like compared to like some of the other kids in college, I was relatively together. And um, so I blamed some of my togetherness on them, too. And I was like kind of taking their advice. But it's also when I learned that you can't do shit that you only want to do half ass. You know, and can I cuss? Yes. I, yep. I'm known, Go for it. I'm known for my cursing. I can tell you a story about that later, but, um, so was it difficult? Was it difficult to like, to, to shift that path when you were, you know, you had the pressure, the, the ideal from your parents, what they wanted you to do to then pivot away from that. Was that challenging for you or did well, it just feel right? No, and it was like, it's kind of a long drawn out story, but it's just like three weeks into it. I decided I'm not doing this. And then my girlfriend was a twin and her sister came to visit me. And I was like, literally like sitting on my hood of my car in the parking lot in Arlington, Virginia. And like kind of crying because I was so unhappy at Georgetown law school. And um, like, I'm still wearing my t-shirt collection. Everybody's wearing a fucking suit. It's like, the, it's summer. It's like three weeks into school. Like Jesus. And um, so Aaron, she comes along and she's like, what's wrong. And I kind of tell her and she's like, well, then just quit. And it like never occurred to me that you could quit anything because I was like 5'3", trying to score goals. And I played lacrosse too, played attack. It was the same fucking thing. Coming around, diving horizontally, shooting, getting my neck blown out. Mm. You know, I mean, that was just my, you know, there was impossible for me to do any of this, but I wanted to do it. And then so I go to law school. It's clear I don't want to do that. Aaron's like, why don't you quit? I'm like, okay. And then I do, but then I have to find a job. The hardest thing was telling my parents. And they were like, if, we, if you want to, we'll pay for your marriage, your wedding. And I'm like, no, that's not the point. You know, I'm not trying to get married, you know, right now. Uh, although I was like living with this girlfriend who eventually, because of my dedication to the job, uh, everything, mm -hmm. she's like the long-term hometown honey from high school. Like, um, I kind of had to choose, but mm. like, so somehow I got to the post and that's kind of a long story too, but it starts out with me failing the spelling and typing test, even though I was a 3.98 Phi Beta Kappa with all kinds of resume and all kinds of, sh they didn't give a shit. I had yeah. a whole clip, but you know, I just failed the spelling and typing test. You know what I'm going to say? And I couldn't spell. Um, and they didn't have spell check in those days. You know, you just had to know like how many S's are in missiles and, and where does it go? You know, they yeah. gave you some words that were spelled right and some that were spelled wrong. You're supposed to, edit, you know. So anyway, at first they said no. And then I like wouldn't take no for an answer. I kept calling back and, um, and, uh, and they took me for like a lesser job. Hmm. But like from then on, it was like, Everybody there was like, like President Theodore Roosevelt's granddaughter or poet laureate of the United States, James Dickey, who wrote Deliverance. His son became kind of a mentor to me. 
They were mm. all at Bob Woodward. You know, every there was all these people there. And then I remember one time I was starting to write some stories and they said the number two guy wanted to meet me, which he didn't. And then kind of I worked from seven at night till three in the morning and uh, at these doing a shitty job. And then I would kind of stay awake and um, like go out and do stories and stuff. And so the guy who was like helping me, like told me this guy wanted to meet me. So I like waited around all day. I was like, hadn't slept at all. I'm waiting around all day. And um, finally, like, you know, we intersect in the middle of this huge newsroom. And uh, the first thing he says is, oh, what's your background? And the, my only professional experience was my senior year of college. And this is what like killed me. I did an internship for an alternative weekly, sort of like uh, City Beat here or The Reader mm -hmm. in San Diego. It was called yep. Creative Loafing. And it was creative like the greatest loafing. name ever. Like, oh my God, I'm working for Creative Loafing. And what happened was I would go there and the guy would say, go write a story about such and such. The first one I wrote about was edible plants, which was kind of new, a new thing. Now everybody eats flowers, but like back then it was like new. And then he's like, write a, write a story about raft race, rafting on the Chattahoochee River. So I get all my friends and we go, and I'm like, this is fucking work. I'm like, yeah. are you kidding me? And then I would get to write it up because I just loved, I, I did all this writing and I would stay up late at night in the fraternity house and, and write and smoke cigarettes, which you're allowed to do then. And, um, and so anyway, uh, it's always been, I, I started out talking about Kobe and it's always been that thing like they say in all the movies, you know, you have to be twice as good as them, you know? <laughs> that whole like Morgan Freeman, sure. Gossett, you yeah. know, speech. Usually it's, it's given to black, black people but in my case the jew from my background was creative i'm like i say to this important dude at the washington post he's like what's your background i said well i went to emory which nobody had heard of at the time and and i worked for creative loafing and he just like looked at me he like looked at me and turned and kept walking wow. and so it was always like I have to shove, I have to like do shit so good that it's like shoving it so far up their ass that it's going to come out through their face. You know, I mean, that was, that's like the, that, I, I think that's an athletic attitude. Yeah. You know, I know I'm not competitive because that's something else I loved about Kobe because in Kobe, I found kind of codified in like an extreme way, like almost like all the thing, things I believe already that I'd come to and that the work ethic was one of them and hmm. that's what I ended up writing about it it was before all of his commercials came out so I didn't come up with it but I was the first one to help change the idea about what Kobe was about hmm. but Kobe was just so into this shit that that's the other thing I was going to say is that like I believe I I, I have a law I can't um think of what I say but it's kind of like um, uh, the theory of originals to be number one in a class of one you just don't mm. compete you like make another line mm. you know or if you can look at it another way you just you run from the front of the race and if you're at the front you don't need to fucking look behind you they're looking at you they're looking at each other they're at, but you're just like you're like concentrating on your form. You're getting your, you're, you're like doing your ultimate breathing. You've got your program like down. You're like just fucking dope. And like, that's something that has nothing to do with anybody. Right. Now, Does that come with like owning your own style? Would you say? Does that come with owning who you are and really embracing who you are? Because you can't, if you're embracing yeah. who you are uniquely, then you can't, there's nothing to compare. Nobody can compete with that, right? Well, that's kind of the problem, too, that means that you, it takes you a few years to get to there, even though I already, always had this thing. Because, like, as you, as it, like, it sort of, like, becomes a question of, well, what's doing good mean? 
and how much is enough and what do you need? And so that's when it all comes down to like an inner confidence. And mm -hmm. I think the best example of that for me um, was, you know, at one time there was no eBooks and at one time there was no Amazon. And um, I had like five books published by, you know, New York places. And then all of a sudden there was Amazon and all of a sudden they sold books. And then all of a sudden there were fucking customer reviews. <laughs> like it used to be your book got sent to like somebody at the New York Times who like knew something supposedly. And they would like ream you a new asshole or they would like say something good, but they like knew what about books. But now any jerk off can like give their opinion. I mean, that's really what the whole information age is about. It's like, right. that's kind of what's killed the kind of work I did because anybody can be a journalist and everything's been cheapened. And, you know, mm. like they used to pay me for like three months or four months to do one story. I mean, I, I got paid six figures to do one story. Wow. You know, but that's all I did. Yeah. You know, every day, except like coach the team and have dinner with the family and watch yeah. a little and then get up and do it the next what day. What story was that? Well, all of my stories were like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, that was just like what I did. Well, in the beginning, like they paid me shit. I mean, I right. Get right. It, but, um, so, so during that process, I did nine months of work for like $1,700. Wow. Like that so, was the book the story that became Boogie Nights. Well, right, um, right. I was gonna ask about that. So one of these stories you were you were focusing on was the inspiration for the film Boogie Nights, right? With Mark Wahlberg and a whole, you know, star studded cast. So what was that what was that story and what was the 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 approach to that story? Well, it's kind of interesting because um anyway, I just wanted to say bottom line is you have to mm -hmm. have your you have to like oh let me finish that because yeah, yeah. and then I'll say that because um, one day I went to Amazon and I discovered there were these customer reviews. So one day I went to Amazon and I saw there were all these customer reviews by people who didn't know anything. And, um, you know, I noticed for my best-selling book, Scary Monsters and Super Freaks, there was one person with a one star. And it said simply, this guy can't write. Now, by this time, I'd clawed my way to that job where I was getting, you know, six figures a year to do four stories. And I was like killing it every time, whether it was big recognized or just like really a gem that five people knew how good it was. Like I always, I work for five people, mm. you know, who it's like the, the equivalent of, of Kobe, Shaq, Charles Barkley, and, you know, like if inside sports thinks I, I'm doing good, if inside the NBA kind of thing of writing. So anyway, this one person says, this guy's writing sucks. This guy can't write, I think is what they said. And that's when it kind of dawned on me that, like, anybody can say anything. So more now more than ever, it has to be about what you understand about yourself, but then you can't lie to yourself because um, coming from a background similar to yours, um, I grew up thinking I was like hot shit. Mm. And like by sixth grade, people thought I was conceited because I didn't do anything to prove that I was hot shit. I just thought I was. And that was kind of a big comeuppance too when you know you realize, oh no, you have to perform if you want to be hot shit, even though your parents always think you're like the golden penis, you know? So, um, so that's the answer to that question about like being centered for yourself and how mm -hmm. ultimately that's the answer. I mean, obviously what other people say matter and over time that input goes into what you think about yourself as well. It should. And if they all think you're an asshole, then you need to reevaluate a little bit. Um, but so anyway, beautiful. John Holmes. Um, it was like my, only my second crime story of that magnitude. I spent six years at the Post learning the whole deal. What happened was at the Post was after 11 months, I 
basically like stole, it was my job to answer phones late at night and we would get these drunks calling in and then sometimes we would get, I mean, you could put a guy on hold and come back in an hour as you were doing all these menial tasks like copies and taking things places and doing all that. And um, the guy could still be talking. But then every once in a while, a great tip came in. And I'd been like freelancing and slowly but surely. So I'd work all day in a suit and then change to my t-shirt collection to be a copy boy. And like that was going on and on and on. And then finally, um, there, for re at one point there was a huge fire in DC, right? And all the reporters would go out and nobody had cell phones and nobody had computers. So what they would do is like the old movies, hello, sweetheart, get me rewrite. There was actually like a bank of women, like, and they were women and they, no, there was one guy and they, <laughs> they sat on the phone and they took dictation. Well, this is a big fire and they did at the post what they called back in those days. They, I'm sure they're not allowed to call it this anymore, but they called it a gangbang. Because we had like 80 Metro reporters. If we wanted to cover like the Iranian hostage crisis, like we could cover anything, you know. Mm. So everybody was fanned out doing this whole thing. And one of the reporters called in. He had like some eyewitness account that he wanted to add to the story. And all the ladies were busy. And um, I said I would take the dictation, even though, as you recall, I was in a job where I wasn't allowed to type or spell That's because right. I had failed at typing and spelling, but I fucking did it anyway. And then I corrected and I retyped it. I mean, motherfucker, I'm not an idiot. Um, but so I took it over to the editor and like, oh, look what I did. You know, Mr. 21 year old, I'm taking my own initiative. And they like reamed me a new asshole. <laughs> Really? And I swear, I'm not allowed to do that. It was like, there were many times working for an institution where there was some bullshit reason why they were going to be mad at you, which had mm -hmm. nothing to do with what was going on or the morality of it or anything. So lesson learned. So then a few nights later, a week later, whatever it was, Elephant doesn't forget. And, um, and, uh, and this tip comes in. And I type it all up. And I go over to the editor, and he's still my friend on Facebook. Uh, he was like, he always worked at night. He, we would have lunch, and he'd have martini cocktails, Bombay gin, you know. And uh, it was just like he was an old newsman, you know. Um, but he was also gruff as fuck, and he, he taught me a lot. He taught me, like, I would write up this story, and he'd say, what hand was the gun in? This is later when I was a reporter. Like, I don't know. So I had to call back and ask. Or he'd say, what side of the car did he walk around? And I'd have to call back and ask. And I, but that learned me for later how to report crime. Like how mm. you had to like create a picture that you could see in order to describe it to people. And that took the, that took the extra reps to get the fucking details. You know? Um, so anyway, I, I typed up the I typed up the tip, I took it over to Gruff Editor, and he's like, what do you want, Sager? And I'm like, oh, never mind. I like, just fuck you. And I just went home, changed, and showed up in the, in the secretary's office in the, um, in the FDA building. Okay. And she had reported that like the trash men were coming, get, get the trash, but then they would go in the warehouse and take like TVs and typewriters and, and desks and all kinds of shit and then leave with it. And so I sat there all day until I saw them do it. And that started this big story. And, you know, like I said, Bob Woodward was the boss. He didn't understand my little feature stories that I like to write, but he understood an investigation. And I ended up like, finding the place where they were taking the furniture. I went through all these sewage dumps, you know, all this wow. stuff. And um, so after, after one year, I became a, uh, a reporter. Woodward promoted me um, on the strength of finally doing that. I think also I was like freelancing like three or four stories a week by this time for different sections. And I think they were paying me a ton, mm. like 
between because my salary wasn't bad either. I was making like 25 grand with benefits just to be like a copy boy, you know, this full-time yeah. job, benefits, right. everything. Um, so anyway, I spent six years there and then it kind of became like newspapers are newspapers and magazines are magazines. One writer I moved in after magazines, she went to Rolling Stone too, I think. Um, Joyce Wadler, she just said, I try to get a cuss word in every story. And like at the post, it was all straight laced and you had to be like, they thought they were so important. And it was like, you had to be dressed to go to the White House. You know, like nobody was in, I mean, I actually did go to the White House and I interviewed Reagan and I went with Nancy Reagan somewhere, which was a trip. But so I had a big background of, of, of crime reporting, but while I was doing that, I was resisting and trying to write these feature stories. Well, then I got to Rolling Stone and in the old days, if an editor liked you, they had story ideas. Yeah. They think, like I had done a story, I moved into Corcoran Street in DC, which was like the horse stroll. There were hookers up and down the street. There were, you know, but it was cheap, 150 grand for like a fucking townhouse. It's worth like a million, two million now. Of course, but um, so I wrote about this pimp. Uh, this guy I'd met in law school. He calls me up one day. He's like, "Listen," and because I, I kind of became a legend at Georgetown Law because before the people graduated in '81, I was class of '81. By '79, I was a fucking reporter with a byline. Yeah, and you probably did what a lot of them wanted to do, which was say, screw this, I'm going to go do what I want to do. Yeah, and it wasn't like you had Facebook or texting in those right. days. It wasn't, you didn't stay, but like people read the post. Right, seeing you and in the post. These, there were the people from like my study group, you know, and I really liked yeah, those cool. guys. Like if yeah. it was college, they would have been my friends. Right. But, um, so, uh, fuck, what was I saying? Um, you you were they were seeing you you were kind of becoming a little bit of a legend they were seeing you pop up yeah and the reason i was saying that was because this guy um he was doing an internship at like the da or something Mm -hmm. and the da had this pimp as a client and they fucked up the case with the um with the the hooker Mm -hmm. and she and the pimp was really mad and this guy, like I guess, told his attorney, oh, I know this reporter, he can help us. And oh, actually, s- stop. It was that guy, but this was after I left the post and was freelancing you know, right. in Washington. But I was living in Washington, it was all the same. Guy from, guy from Georgetown, hadn't seen him since then, was working in the public defender's office, calls me up, he says, you know, like I told this pimp, he could get justice if he talked to you. <laughs> so, and that got me off on this adventure of like, I spent like three months sitting in a Lincoln Continental all night long, like, you know, doing blow and talking to pimps and hookers and all this stuff, hanging out, like going to the mall and buying the hooker clothes with the, with the pimp, you know, and all kind of crazy stuff. And this guy was funny because he, he was a former um, veteran and uh, he'd been at to war. One night, really late at night, we'd do, done too much drugs. And he says, Mike, I just need another kill. I'm like, oh, fuck. You know, <laughs> yeah. but he wasn't like dangerous with the girls. He tried to, he like had a dictionary and he would read the dictionary and try to learn a new word every day. You know, he tried to be like, like taught, he tried to like use psychology to like do his thing. But anyway, um, the Rolling Stone guy saw that and mm. he knew I could do like stories like that. So Rolling Stone had me do this story about a pit bull, a boy and his dog in hell. Yep. Um, and that led to other things. And then they gave me my first crime story, which is hopefully going to be a TV series called um, Death of a High School Narc. That's being written right now by this woman who, um, interesting story, started in the writer's room as an assistant on Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. By the end of Breaking Bad, she was a writer. 
by Better Call Saul. She won an Emmy. And then she wrote this whole thing called The Act, which is a great, if you ever want to watch something on Hulu, The Act Mm -hmm. with um, Roseanne Arquette's sister, uh, the other one, who's just so great. But anyway, so that was the first story. And then they handed me this story about John Holmes. And um, interesting, there's an aside to every aside, I'm afraid, but they gave me this email that had been written to the MTV's first like news announcer who was named Kurt Loder. He was a Rolling Stone correspondent who went to MTV in the very beginning. He was on every day. And I guess he was too busy and he didn't answer this email where he was offered to do the story about John Holmes dying mm-hmm. of AIDS. And what's the story with it? And I was literally given this email that had been written to him and an, and, and an article from the New York Times. And the contract was for 1875 or 1725 or seven, I can't remember what it was, but it's something like under $2,000. Yeah. But they sent me out there three times and it took me like nine months and they paid for all of the all the travel and all documents. I had to get so many court documents and mm. all that stuff. And then all throughout, I've been hearing that he actually had had like this straight wife. And I guess for people who don't know, John Holmes was like from the very first crop of porn stars back in the day when it was kind of like you could see them in theaters. And even before they had, you know, VCRs and beta that changed porn and, and of course the computer and stuff. Right. It's like a whole, it was kind of like almost like innocent then. Mm-hmm. And they also tried to make it a little bit artsy, even though it was kind of bad. Yeah. Um, and John, John Holmes had this um, franchise where he was Johnny Wad, the detective, you know, and um, they tried to have like dialogue and he was like, this skinny guy and it was polyester, you know, and, and really the funny thing was, is I had never really watched much porn. I mean, in my fraternity one time we had like, you know, the projector and the black and white with the guy with the socks on and, and, you know, the hairy woman and, and, um, (laughs) and, but that was all I really knew about porn and I didn't really care that much about it. I mean, I like to do it, but I wasn't really, and and how could you, right? You really just couldn't. And it was just like, it was a little like fighting World War III, you know, on three different fronts. There was John Holmes, the porn guy, and the whole legend of this like skinny guy who came from the Midwest and wanted to be somebody. And he was like, he was literally, he was doing all these weird odd jobs and he'd been driving uh, a forklift. He'd been driving a forklift um, in a meat packing plant in Cudahy, California, and he got like pneumonia and his lung collapsed. So he was on disability. So to pass his time, he started going to this poker parlor in Gardena. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, they have all those casinos down there even still. And he actually also worked at a coffee mix factory at one point. Like really weird shit, right? Yeah. Um, and he was also a... He was a, a rescue ambulance driver, which is where he'd met his wife, who was a, a legit nurse in a cardiac team at UCLA. So he had this whole life before. And so anyways, working at this meatpacking plant, he's running the little you know, forklift thing in and out of the freezer. He gets pneumonia. So he has to be off for a while and he starts going to play poker. One day he's taking a piss at the urinal. And the guy in the urinal next door is, says to him, I could make you famous. <laughs> no and, way. And yeah, and this, this is all from his wife, Sharon. And what I, I was telling the story, eventually what would happen is I would find Sharon, and who was his wife, and then she'd turn up at my door with this other woman named Dawn, who was John's mistress when he, she was 15. And they became the two women. It's Lisa Kudrow, is Sharon, mm. and I forget who plays Dawn in the movie Wonderland with Val Kilmer. Mm. And 
that's like almost exactly my story. Whereas Boogie Nights just borrows certain things from it um, and like the basic idea. Um, but so, so it became like this story about John Holmes, the porn star. And then also because I was a history major and I see journalism as sort of like the front lines of writing history. And I also try to have perspective because I think human beings have zero. And like, if we just learn the past, we see mm -hmm. the patterns. So there always, there had to be like a, you know, cumulative look at the history of porn, like, you know, and again, this is before the internet. So you had like right. go to the Library of Congress, you had to call people, you, know, you couldn't just like Google shit. And, um, and then he had died of AIDS. And that was like the first AIDS death in porn. Mm. And that like rattled everybody. And like AIDS was pretty new and he was like supposedly hetero. So maybe, I mean, I'd be curious to know from, from your perspective, like, is it is it cool to see the stories that you were uncovering and telling be told in a wide way on the big screen and with A-list celebrities? Like what's what's that experience like for you as a writer? Um it's um it's transformative if only first because of the finances. Mm. Because like I wouldn't live in San right. Diego. I just told you I lived in the ghetto. Yeah with my wife and small child you know and like we had to go, we had this like suburban door in the back of the house that like led onto an alley so it'd be like get out quick close it down you know um so that's transformative um you know it's a funny thing i've i lost count at how many stories i've sold and some resold a few times um at around 30 hmm. and i'd say there's about five things that have gotten made and some of them i didn't get paid for like um boogie nights dude pt anderson didn't really acknowledge my story or me until 10 years later when they, he did the the video uh you know the uh, the 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 director's thing for the right. DVD, and then he said, "Oh, there's this story in Rolling Stone," and then and then Mark Marone, he made him say my name once. I I don't know Mark Marone. I actually tried to interview him once and didn't call me back. But um, God bless him because then then P.T. Anderson was forced to say that Mike Sager wrote the story that mm. influenced me, and and that's I mean. You know, I would have liked the money. I've gotten paid for other things that never got made, and that's frustrated too. And you know, we had a we had a documentary series, a series of series. I'd gone to Samoa um, to learn about the Samoan pipeline of football players, mm. and I met a family in Samoa and all these teams. And then I met, you know, the coach. He's now at Oregon. He was the coach at Washington. Um, uh, Samoan guy with all the, and it was called the Samoan Pipeline. Mm. It was a fascinating story about like the Samoan diaspora and really the history of Samoa too. When you go back to that, because um, so, um, long story short, on like about March fifth, it was going to be a series of series starting with the Samoan pipeline, moving on to basketball in Africa, baseball in Costa Rica, mm, very you know, cool. hockey in wherever, you know, and then like by March 30th, it was like, dang, a couple of things like that, but it's been heartbreaking. I had a Rick James series, TV, wow. uh, scripted series that has been going on for two years. We got the music. We got, cause I was pretty, friendly with rick james personally really? after i wrote about him and um we started to do a book together his his but i had to guarantee the book and i couldn't guarantee that he would show up for the interview so i didn't mm. enter into that contract but 
Um, <laughs> but I still liked him. And we had this great thing going and then just it went, and it's weird in Hollywood how like, oh, well, somebody else would love this. We have Rick James. We have, we have all his music and we have this period of time where they can't get enough, you know, African-American, you know, based programming. And it was all like an African-American screenwriter and, and Ty James, his daughter. And, um, but no, so that was just poof. So that mm. was like two out of three went away. And so there's still one, the, the death of a high school narc is going. And um, there's a couple of podcasts now that I'm getting into that side of the business where um, I'm working with this company, Neotext, neotextcorp.com. And uh, they've sort of wanted me to represent some of my old books and put them back into circulation. I use these amazing, um, amazing artists for the covers. Um, they're like movie poster art artists and I love their name. It's We Buy Your Kids. It's like uh, this, the two partners that they work together and they go by W-B-Y-K and it's We Buy Your Kids and I think it's hilarious and their work just sort of shows that somebody would call that their company that, yeah. you know, and, and, and so, we're also working to develop other like intellectual property because these days there's this whole boom on narrative work becomes podcast, becomes something else, mm -hmm, scripted mm -hmm. series, movie, documentary, which is a little bit based on um, Dirty John by Chris Gofford. It was first seen in the LA Times. He's a buddy of mine, lives in Orange County. And, um, his thing went crazy. It was about this. It, it ended up being a TV, a TV limited series. Well, it's actually a, in a second series with like a new story about a dirty, a new Dirty John, Dirty Joe. You know, dirty this guy Joe. who like marries this praise on this, you know, divorced woman and takes her, you know, it's kind of like a creepy. Yeah. Dirty John, was, it was fun. I recommend it. It's on Netflix. I think it's free. Um, so, so I'm kind of toiling in that thing now where I'm a kind of a supervising producer and I kind of do interviews to kind of wrangle the people because I'm kind of, over the years, I've learned that I'm, I don't really act like a journalist <laughs> and yeah. um, my intentions don't come through like that. So that I, that's one of those, I think the secrets of my thing. So now I'm, you know, I have like younger guys are doing like the leg work, but I, I right. like, I pull in the big fish and then they organize all this electronic stuff. And then yeah. I'm also, you know, it's still doing the publishing. And, um, and so, so anyway, it's like, it's a fun thing to do. It makes you feel like you're still alive. You know, Miles and I had gone on a vacation. Um, I was so, it was like a, uh, it was right before COVID. Um, we'd gone on a vacation with his friend Ziad. Yeah. And they invited me along. And I was like thrilled, you know, whether it was because they wanted me to pay or, you know, <laughs> you know I'm sure that might have been part of it, but I didn't care. But anyway, we dropped Ziad off. He was working up near China Lake on this job he has as an MBA. Um, and uh, on our way home, my phone started buzzing and it was Kobe had died. Mm. And um, I'm in the car with Miles. So, and Miles was right there with me watching Kobe. Like right. I moved here the same year Kobe moved here. And when I was a father and you're like in a world of shit and you've got like no life, like I would like BCR games, Laker games. And so I just like, always knew Kobe and then I spent time with Kobe and um we had like a five hour drive home and and we're like stunned and all of a sudden my phone rings and these, this this guy from the Atlantic wants me to write about Kobe and uh, oddly like Esquire called like five minutes later because they already had my Kobe story but um so and I told the guy well let me think about it and Miles said to me 
who is now 27, just turned 27. I guess he was 26 or 25 at the time. He says, Dad, you need to stay current. <laughs> and you know, a father will do anything his child tells him is cool right. to do. Right. So I was happy that I, you know, I, I wrote that and I do kind of stay current a little bit. Like I've done a couple of celebrity profiles. Um, but, um, you know, I like where we are now with it. And, yeah. uh, yeah. And the movies are sort of a nice icing on the cake where there's the possibility of like actual paydays, but there's mm -hmm. also like it's process. And for me, you know, the process has always been more important than the product. I didn't know that I would be sitting here doing this. I had no fucking idea. I just wanted to see how far I could go. I just wanted to see how far I could go. Like, I didn't know. Like, how do you know? Well, you can know if you're like, I'm going to go to law school, then I'm going to go join a firm, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to have a child, you know, but like I teach my, my students usually, I somewhere if I'm doing this, this rap about it, I'm, it's like, at some point, you're like, just leave the highway and go through the fence, and you're out through the high desert, you know, just four wheeling it. Like, you don't know where the fuck you're going. And, um, and that's okay because like, like what you're doing, the process is like what you're doing it for. Mm. And, um, and then the result takes care of itself. It does. I mean, it's not that you can't, you have to be totally hippy dippy and think that you can't like be like a little bit succession like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, in your billions, like whatever, in your um, in your choices of things. But I do think it's kind of like it's like Kobe, like athletes, like, you know, work on your fundamentals, get your head right and like give an honest effort and then don't fucking worry about the other team. That's your coach's job to worry about the other team. Yeah, you know, so. I like that a lot. Now I'm I'm curious around the mindset. Yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. um, I'm I'm curious about the mindset because so I love storytelling as well from um, from an experiential standpoint of like going and doing amazing experiences, put challenging experiences, things outside of my comfort zone to help shift my perspective and learning, and then coming back and telling the stories about that or writing about that. It, it sounds like that's what you were doing for your profession for in these different scenarios for, for, I mean, for many, many years. And, and I was reading that some of the things you were doing, you were living with a crack gang in LA, like you were really going in there or when you were, when you were working with the pimp and you were doing that story, like you were really like rubbing shoulders and you were really rolling your sleeves up and, and, and immersively getting into that environment. What was like, what was that mindset like as you're going in and jumping full in off the deep end? Well, I think, I think a, a big part of it had to do with, um, I was kind of fascinated by anthropology hmm. and Margaret Mead, you know, and the, and Samoa, that's why going to Samoa, it was for me, was so cool. Mm -hmm. um, this idea that you can pull up a log at the campfire and just sit there and shut the fuck up. Yeah. And like, it's like, you, typically, I try to make a friend, a spirit guide, I would call them. And it's like, you go to the fraternity party. It's been a lot of fraternity talk today. <laughs> um, you go to the frat party, you need to go with a member of the frat. Right. And they take you there and if you're okay and you just sit there and you're cool, you know, then other people start to think you're cool. And then it's kind of like, I can't go into this environment like asking questions because I don't know anything. And luckily I kind of was, I mean, I was trained as a journalist, but I was trained as an on the job journalist. Mm. So, and it's just like, A, I don't like to travel. When I was 10 years old, my parents put me on the wrong bus in, in Baltimore. And I ended up in like Richmond, Virginia, oh, instead of like this small town in Virginia where I was supposed to go. And I don't remember being like freaked out, but like to this day, I get like, you know, 
you know, wet palm if something's going wrong or like, like my, like sometimes the GPS, all of a sudden it, it'll jump over and it's in the wrong, it thinks I'm over there. I don't know right. if that's ever happened to you. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. kind of have to like stop the car and then yeah. have to like be, have the presence of mind not to worry about it or whatever. But right. I'm like, so I'm not a natural traveler, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of like I got into writing because I like sitting up late at night when everybody was asleep um, at the poker table in the living room, um, smoking cigarettes and maybe a, a little weed. Mm-hmm. And just typing stuff, my column for the newspaper, you know, whatever I was doing. And, you know, I like to joke around that there's only two times in life when I'm not paying attention to what time it is. And one of them is writing and the other is sex. Um, <laughs> it's like I'm t- in the moment. I'm not right. worried about anything. There's just nothing. And that's kind of like to me, like the ultimate, like where you're just in it and not conscious of it. And um, so, so I forgot what the question was, but um, yeah, you're, no, you're deeply in it. <laughs> I, I I like it. I like it. As I, I think that's a big indicator for for a lot of people. What are those things that bend time for you? That's probably a good indication that you're you're on a direction or on a path that that is aligned with you deeply, or that can allow you to um, separate yourself from other people. I know people. what you're talking about, though. And I guess what it is, is that so given that part and given the part where I like to be in a room, I'm afraid mm-hmm. to go places. And then I, I, I grew to five foot five, but I grew up in the disco era and you had to like go up to a woman and ask them to dance or a man or whatever. I think when I was in a gay environment, nobody cared. Everybody liked me. <laughs> but when I was in a hetero environment, it was like you're always like fighting for the attention of some like person and, and you're, they're like mm-hmm. kind of looking down on you or whatever. I, I don't know. I just felt I'm just not good at picking up women. You know, I yeah. just never have been. But I can go in a fucking bar and pick up a steel worker, mm-hmm. you know. But also, usually when I'm going, I'm like, my last name is from the Washington Post from Esquire from, it's like an icebreaker and suddenly you're like you're not you you're somebody else and then also with these all these stories it was like you had to make sure they got done and so you're putting on this cape to do this thing and then like the whole time you're there you're not quite sure whether you did it or not or you're mm-hmm. always worried I haven't gotten far enough you know, I had this thing in journalism called the toilet bowl theory of journalism, where um, I like to keep my students interested. Yeah, um, what is that? I'm intrigued. When my job is kind of like, I feel like I jump off the toilet seat into the toilet and I flush and I just go round and round and round until I go. And when I go down, then you're like mixing metaphors a little. I'm in Nemo land. Like I'm swimming with the fishes. Like I'm just down here you know and it's like holy shit here i am and at that point i'm just like wow this is really cool and then over the years i you know used my other skills like i was that kid that other kids would come to to ask questions of at camp when i was 12 years old you know and then in in college and i was in a fraternity and then i was fraternity president for two fucking years like just go ask sigs so my, I think because my father was an OBGYN. I don't know. But they people naturally talk to me. Mm-hmm. And I must have inherited that skill from him. And so I go into these places and I kind of grew up under these circumstances where I was open to stuff. And um, I learned early on that people are just people, even though they're different. And I once wrote a story about Roseanne and she told to me, told me the most brilliant thing anyone's ever said. She said, all hate is just fear. All fear is insecurity. All hate is fear. All fear is insecurity. It's Mm -hmm. like, they don't know you. They don't get you, you know? And I was like the first person to shave my head in 1986. I did it three years before Michael Jordan. So it gave me this amazing, because people suddenly couldn't place me. Mm. 
So I could like be whatever they wanted me to be. I have a good smile. I remember walking into this play, this motel in, in Midlothian, Texas, and um, it's raining out. And I'm wearing all black because it doesn't get dirty when you travel. That's why I started wearing all black. Yeah. And, um, and, and the woman looks at me and she sees this bald guy in all black with an earring and a beard and nobody fucking looked like that then. Like now it's like everybody looks like that. Yeah. In fact, there's a kind of a, a, a put down story on me on that. But I looked at her and I could tell she was frightened of me. And so I went up to the desk and I smiled real big and I said, my head's wet. And she laughed really hard. <laughs> so funny. My head's wet. And I said a little Southern because I'm from the South. And we were best friends after that. Yeah. Broke the ice. Yeah. And also allayed their fears, took care of their fear and insecurity. What is this guy going to do to me? And so over the years, over the years, over the years of doing all this thing, crack gang, 600 pound man, you know, heroin users, artistic heroin users on the Lower East Side of New York, Tupperware women in suburban Maryland, you know, and then like all these celebrities, all these other people, Aryan nations. Um, I think that the book I was talking about that has some of my most hardcore things, um, including the sort of like the most recent big thing I did about rodeo, which was mm. super interesting, knew nothing about it. They're like, you're going to go cover the Michael Jordan of rodeo. He's won 28 straight national titles. So do you know what a national title is in fucking rodeo? Nope. Nope. Exactly. So I like started from there. I ended up spending 10 days at the Super Bowl of rodeos in Las Vegas. I mean, you know, the lion at the MGM in mm -hmm. Las Vegas, they had a fucking cowboy hat on it. A huge fucking cowboy. I have a picture. It's like, great. Um, so, but what I'm getting at is you don't always agree with these people. Um, but that thing my parents gave me of self-confidence like, it doesn't hurt my feelings if somebody, like, doesn't agree with me. I don't have the, in, the fear due to insecurity. I, like, I'm okay. Because, like, also, I'm, like, going to be the one with the last word here. Mm. So because I do, it gives me the luxury of fucking listening. Like, going to the Aryan Nations compound. The guy, like, coming out on the on the steps of this rustic bunker and he's wearing a brown uniform with like the strap like this and the leather belt and the, the SS shit on him. And he's like, looks at me, he's like, are you a Jew? And I've done my homework. It's one of the few times, cause usually I'm not a, a practicing Jew, but I am very ethnically Jewish mm -hmm. and I believe in my, diversity even though today like jewish people are considered diverse even though they're only what six eight percent of the yeah. you know we are fucking 15 million 15 million in the world and yeah. like we were our people were enslaved two thousand years ago way before any of this slavery shit went on went yep. down over here yep. so we've like been so you know i i believe in promulgating that i grew up in that generation where they said always remember and don't ever forget they had to say both things yeah. You know, like, yep. You know what I'm talking about. Exactly. So um, I've always tried to be me. At that moment, I knew better and it was okay. And I'd done my homework. So I knew, I knew Italians were a part of the Aryan Nations. And, you know, I could be Italian. Totally. So I just said I'm Italian. So it works both ways, but that gets me in. And then, you know, my sort of thing for that is, if you yell at the TV, you don't know what your enemy is saying. Hmm. You know, I listen. You know, it's like that guy, Art of War guy. He's like totally into knowing your enemy. You right. know, and, um, and what I do is I always find that if I dig deep enough, I find a communality with people. Hmm. 
And that's what all of these stories are about. They're about like a shared humanity that we all have, even though how we're all so fucking different. And like, I wrote about Rodney King. I was the first one to write about driving while black. Uh, you know, I, I studied at Southern history and all that shit in college. And I, 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 and I was married to a black person and I, I early kind of early in the, in the game. And I was, I was always like trying to do that. I was friends with Jesse Jackson, did a big piece on Al Sharpton, you know, when everyone hated Al Sharpton, mm -hmm. he was like in a track suit. He was fat. It was Tawana Brawley. Now he's the guy's run for president. He's respected. He's the one they call. You know, and so that's been the thing that I learned. It's like, keep your mouth shut, you know, listen, and they don't have to change your mind, but your mind's going to change just a little bit. Yeah. You know, or, or the way I look at it is um, I'm kind of a found art assemblage of all these different like fucking people. Like it doesn't necessarily make mm -hmm. me great for a common society, you know, <laughs> as a person, but, um, I think it's given me a lot of wisdom of, you know, empirical wisdom that you then at compound over the years and, and things kind of get filed and like you start mm -hmm. seeing the meaning of stuff. Are we running out of time? I love it. Yeah. We're, we're unfortunately, cause I could, I could sit here and listen to your stories literally all day long <laughs> as they expand. So, um, we're gonna, we're gonna put a pin on this one, but I am gonna, That's I am fine. gonna get together with you and maybe do a, uh, maybe grab a drink or something like that at some point in the, in the That'd future. Great, so we man. can, you owe me so a we drink can, now. I, I got you. I got you. Supper. I love it. I love it. Is there, um, is there anything that you want to share with the, the listeners as we part here? No, like uh, check out maybe the SagerGroup.net, thesagergroup.net. Yep. There's a lot of great books on there. If, um, because, because Mike Sager is the base, uh, my books are all on the bottom right now. Nice. Um, also, there's MikeSager.com. Mm -hmm. Either one for any of you um, aspiring writers out there, young or old, um, we have something I informally think of as the Ministry for Wayward Writers. And I do spend plenty of time talking to people I never fucking met in my life mm -hmm. because they want someone to talk to. And I, I feel that. So feel free Beautiful. info at Mike Sager, go to the website, whatever. Josh, good to see you. Hey man, a pleasure. A fine young man. Thank you, my man. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you for sharing and look forward to, uh, to seeing you soon. I'll be getting that drink from you. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Take care.